Hey everyone, welcome back to Outside the System. Today's episode is going to be a bit different. It's the first episode of a new series called Outside the System Labs. With the series, I'll be highlighting extremely early stage solutions to systemic problems along with the people building them. If you're a builder or hope to build something in the future, I think you'll get a lot of value from these episodes. The one you're about to listen to is my conversation with Peter Conley. Peter is building Unbundled, a marketplace for buyers and sellers of higher ed alternatives, allowing students to customize their higher education experience to exactly what they're looking for. If you enjoy this episode, you'll also like episode three, where I interviewed Mitch Earl of Praxis. You can help support the show by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple, telling your friends, and supporting the show financially with Bitcoin on Fountain or any other podcasting 2.0 app. And of course, let me know on Twitter what you think about the new labs format. Let's get started. Peter, thanks for coming on Outside the System today. Appreciate you having me on, Neil. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about unbundling education. And, you know, I think you're building something in this space, but I've talked about this problem on the show before, um, at least the issues with higher ed, of which there are there are many. <laughs> Um, I had Mitch Earl on, I think his episode three to talk about, uh, Praxis, which is a really good episode for anyone who hasn't listened to that. Uh, particularly we talked a lot more in that one, I think, than what we're going to talk today about student debt. Uh, but I think that does relate to what you, you all are building and, um, uh, kind of some of the things that you're working on today. So I don't want to steal your thunder. I'll let you introduce, you know, yourself and what you're working on, but, uh, I think anybody who enjoyed the the episode about Praxis is really going to get a good one here. Appreciate that. Yeah, so my name is Peter Conley. I am the founder and CEO of a startup called Unbundled. Um, I pitch it kind of as the like an Airbnb of higher education. So the core concept is taking um, loosely bundled or separate businesses like online coding boot camps, like Bloom Tech like gridiron um like general assembly and then creating a marketplace for students that are interested in that but also want a physical uh in real life uh college experience and finding um, existing colleges that have excess dorm capacity whether that be lack of admission or just they've overbuilt infrastructure and getting those students to become actual residents but not have the core program of the undergrad or minors and majors the program and then obviously trying to build um, other ancillary services like potentially learning pods to get on the platform not just college campuses and then hopefully programs like david perel's rite of passage yeah because i think like right now and one thing you know you and i have talked about before uh is just all the services that colleges have to offer today and it's like this bundle that you essentially are subscribing to but isn't really you know, those things don't necessarily all have to go together. Like, you know, some of the things, right, that are part of it is the actual courses, the admissions process, like research, the uh, sports, I guess, food, you know, all this stuff that isn't necessarily like, I think in a in a historical sense, maybe had to be on the same campus. Correct. But today, yeah. because of the internet, doesn't necessarily have to be on the same campus and actually probably can be done better uh, with this sort with sort of a different model. And so, um, not to mention the bloat, right. And the administrative side, which, <laughs> which we'll get into. Other... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, is that how you would think of the problem or that how you would frame the problem? I mean, that's that's kind of how I think about it is that it's like almost an outdated, there's still useful elements to the product, but it's an outdated form factor to deliver uh, education. 100%. I think that's the perfect way to frame it is it's a one size fits all, one product offering that you can't unbundle. And it's kind of grown into this one mass of a product over time and has just compounded and the systems keep reinforcing itself. Um, and like you said, like most colleges have to do admissions or at least they outsource it, but they have to sift through the admissions. They have, uh, facilities management, housing, healthcare, credentialing, food service, ex uh, athletic facilities. And most of the best companies in the world, like are amazing at one or two things. Like obviously there's, um, there's, um, uh, difference or there's exceptions to the rule like Amazon, but not every college is going to be like Amazon and a lot of those core product offerings like aren't related. Like imagine if a Mexican restaurant has to also um, file your taxes, sell hardware hats, make a SaaS product have, and have a massage on staff. Like the burrito, the burrito quality is going to suffer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, they're not spending all their time getting really, really freaking good at this one thing. Exactly. And so their core product, at least what students go for is the education is going to suffer when your bandwidth, your capital bandwidth, your managerial bandwidth is split across all these different functions. And like, obviously they outsource, right? They have third parties that construct the townhouses and potentially have uh, vendors for the food services. They still have to manage it. They still have to understand that, you know, X amount of students means X amount of Y amount of meals that they have to provide and, and, and still spin all those plates. Yeah, at the core of it is just one lump sum product that um, what if specialization of the marketplace were able to come in, I believe it'll just be a 10x better experience for the students. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing is that because of all these different products, there's a bit of a convoluted uh, customer base, right? It's like, who is actually the customer? And I think, you know, on some level that could be the students, right? I could see that on some level being the students. On another level, it could be the parents who are paying for some of this. On another level, it could be companies who are trying to recruit uh, workers from this population. On another level, it could be grad schools, which are trying to get grad students from this population. On another level, I guess you could even say it's like the uh, alumni who are donating to the school, right? And there's just like so many convoluted uh, customer maps here that you could draw of like who is actually the customer. Uh, and I think because of that, you just end up with a lot of competing priorities and then you can't really do anything uh, in a world-class way. 100% agree. And like the, the core user that has the most skin of the game to use a talibism is the student, right? At the end of the day, well, obviously, unless the parents are floating the bill for the education, but most of the time, student walks out the end and yet all those other needs or voices um, have marketing towards them and, and just other services built. But at the end of the day, it's the student that has the the bank account or the student debt and just the, the cost that incurs solely to them on the other side. Yeah. And not even that, it's the rest of their own life that they have to live right off of that. So it's like, they're hoping to get the skills to, you know, ensure they can make a living in the future. And yeah, the parents obviously have a lot of skin in the game, but because of the financial cost, if they're the ones footing the bill, but the student does in terms of the, you know, this is their, their life essentially. So why, so I guess in your opinion, why can't colleges pivot or why don't they pivot? Like, is it, is it just cause they're like not internet native? Is it incentives? 
what's the like what's stopping them from fixing this? Yeah, I think it's heavy fixed costs and incentives to begin with. I don't think it's maliciousness, right? There's plenty of provosts and admins. They recognize the problem. I mean, it's been talked about for a decade ad nauseum, and obviously it's moving into the public consciousness just with the student um, loan debt bill that's come in and kind of reinvigorated the public debate about it. Um, But I think they have two um, big cons against them. And first, we'll talk about incentives. So um, in terms of the the student debt of incentives, um, the colleges get the money. They get paid from Freddie Mae, Sally Mac, or Freddie Mac, Sally Mae. Um, up front. And so they're not, uh, they have that money in the door. And then whatever services they provide is kind of decoupled from the actually out the actual outcome on the other end of the student. And I'll give you a counter example. So I went to, um, I graduated in May from Bloom Tech, the online coding bootcamp, formerly known as Lambda School. Um, it was created by Austin Allred. He started in 2017. Uh, we've had thousands of alumni that have gone through the gates and have been gainfully employed on the other side. And one of the big reasons why it's been so popular and why it works is because they use a financial tool called um, ISAs or income share agreements, meaning that your tuition, um, you don't start paying until you land a job post-education, making at least 50 grand a year or more. And your tuition comes directly from the income of your new paychecks with the job that was related to your training. And it's 17% for 24 months, and then it goes away. And there's also a hard cap at it at 30K. So there are some students that go through their six month program or take 10 months in case they repeat units. Coming out the other end is Amazon engineers making 140K and then just do that uh, bump in income. You know, they pay off their debt within 18 months, sometimes 16, 14 months. And so it's just it's it aligns the the fate of this the program Bloom Tech with the fate of the student. It's like the ultimate form of skin in the game because yeah. if Bloom Tech can't churn out educated students that are ready for the marketplace, they they don't exist. They go bankrupt. Whereas uh, on on the current education system side, because it's government funding most of the time for student loans, they get the money, and no matter what product, education, training that they instill in their students on the other side, like it's all good. And yeah. I, I think, uh, did you ever read the Fiat standard by Safety and Amoose? Uh, I've read the uh, Bitcoin standard. I haven't read the Fiat standard, which is the newer one, right? That's the, the second one that he wrote. Yeah, it's on my list. I haven't gotten there yet. And I actually hope to have him on the podcast at some point. He, he would be like a dream guest. He'd be <laughs> awesome, man. He's Fiat standard is beautiful. He flips it like looking at um the current fiat money system if it was a software product like what are its properties and like what are the downstream effects of it and Mm -hmm. one of the major chapters he talks about is education and just the fact that there's been um the government created the demand and has been through money printing and created and keep uh propagating the student loan system it's created all these knock-on effects because there's there's no direct tie to the outcomes of the people actually funding it and so it kind of created into the mutated system. And uh, there was a, a hilarious video I saw on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago of Elizabeth Warren interviewing the um, heads of the major banks. So Jamie Dimon and, you know, JP Morgan Chase and all of them. And she was just <laughs> ignorantly grilling into them like, 
you know, why are you adding to the student loan process and crisis? And they're like, we stopped providing this as products years ago. <laughs> all of them, all the major banks are like, this isn't a viable product from an ROI standpoint. Mm. And so basically what I'm getting at is the free market is saying like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't, there's no ROI. It doesn't pan out. And like, it's not creating productive workforce, people in the workforce. And so the only reason why it subsists, the system, is because the, the government backs student loans. So that was a long frame up of basically one, incent, the financial incentives behind it. It's totally disconnected from this, the outcome the students want and like responsibility and, and core outcomes uh, and connections that the colleges want. And then two would be the heavy fixed costs to kind of circle back to all the functions that the colleges have to provide, you know, admissions, healthcare, and all that. Like a lot of those are brick and mortar. And they have the physical infrastructure um, and just due to the like the arms race of trying to get students in the door, they're kind of building like quasi Disneyland experiences for 18 year olds and 22 year olds, like lazy rivers, rock climbing walls, um, you know, social functions. And then they have another fixed cost they can't shed is tenured professors of people that they just can't fire. Right. Like in by law. In, yeah, or by agreement, I guess, not by law. Yeah, by agreement. By yeah, I have, yeah, I haven't dived into the contract. I'm sure there's some stipulations, but there's just lack of incentives once professors get to a certain point, right? They, their performance can drop or they can be checked out, and there's just lack of um, aligned incentives there. And then um, uh, you have ever-expanding um, administrative class like diversity, inclusion, equity, leadership departments that just keep growing. Like the, like you mentioned up top, like the bureaucracy bloat is getting insane. I, I would love to bookmark it. There was a chart on, on Twitter I saw of like the amount of administrators in the higher education system and like starting in the, compared to the ratio of professors. And it's just like a straight line up into the right starting around the seventies or eighties. Yeah, probably 1971, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's crazy how many things went wrong there. Do you know the know. world the World Economic <laughs> Forum was started in 1971? That is, I saw that recently. That's <laughs> yeah. unfortunately not surprising, just given everything else that happened in 1971. There's must have been some kind of like wormhole in the in 1971 that sent us down some kind of weird universe, parallel universe, or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah. would blame the well, simulation, uh, but computers weren't at that point yet. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, but I think I, to your to your point about the administrative bloat, it's like it's kind of like in a in a company, right? It's like um, if uh, there's no reason for somebody to try to eliminate their own job, and if anything, they're going to try to like make their job seem more impossible to be eliminated, right? And this is this is actually one of the hard things that I think. In the startup situation, largely, there's more to be done than there are people. And so the more automation and efficiency you can drive, the easier your life is, because otherwise it's crazy. Whereas in a larger company, that doesn't always, it's sometimes like a perfect one-to-one, -one, the right amount of work and the right amount of people, or maybe even more people than there is work to do. And people aren't going to like voluntarily find ways to eliminate their job. And now in a university situation, if you even have things like tenure that make it impossible to eliminate people. And, you know, the other thing is like, there is something that's fundamentally changed about the world post-internet, which is one person, you're, you're not constrained by geography anymore is what I, is what I should Correct. say. Correct. Yeah, yeah. One person who's the best at teaching something can teach. I mean, look at Khan Academy. Like that's crazy, right? Like one guy 
wasn't even a professor or a professional, right? He wasn't even a professional teacher, right? I don't think, I, mean, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, it sounds right. Yeah. Let's, let's see. Let's see. We can, <laughs> we can up, yeah. check ourselves. Yeah. Khan Jamie, Academy. Pull, let's see. Pull that up, Jamie. Yeah. Ja exactly. <laughs> we don't have a Jamie yet, but uh, yeah. okay. Sal Khan. No, he began tutoring his cousin Nadia in mathematics over the internet using Yahoo's Doodle notepad. When other relatives and friends sought his tutoring, he moved his tutorials to YouTube, where he created an account on November 16th, 2006. The popularity of his the popularity of his educational videos on the video sharing website prompted Khan to quit his job as a financial analyst in late 2009. Wild. Like, but that's the kind of thing that can happen on the internet, which wasn't possible before. So you're kind of like, it would be kind of like if Blockbuster was like required by law for some reason and like supported by the government. And yet there was also this alternative way of like streaming any movie you want to your TV. And That's then get example. most of the, yeah. And like most of the money was flowing to the Blockbuster business model. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Imagine if Blockbuster was subsidized by the federal government, you know, starting in the nineties, they could potentially still be around. Of yeah. The, hundreds oh, of yeah. billions or trillions that went into the higher education and it would just it would be like laughable and people would i don't know if they'd still go there but it's that's a great uh parallel example well for education there's a little bit of uh because this this is the part that you know isn't necessarily incentives but well it's probably it's it is it flows from incentives but it's like there's also like the the psyop almost of like well you got to go to college <laughs> like i think people conflate college with education right those are like I think education is a very important thing. And like, there's a bunch of idiots on Twitter who like pretend you don't need education, right? Th those people aren't, I'm, that's, I, I'm not saying what those people are saying is right. The, but the thing is like college doesn't necessarily equal education. And that's where I think there's a little bit of a mix up. hundred percent. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Mark Twain. And he says, I, I never let my education or no, excuse me. I, I never let my schooling get, interfere with my education. Yep. <laughs> And I yeah. think we don't have, I don't think we have a higher education system. I think we have a higher schooling system. Yeah. And, and that's uh, kind of created for, not for necessarily the student, but for these other sort of functions that are out there. 100%. I mean, I and guess, it, I guess like, have you seen, so obviously it sounds like uh bloom tech, right? That's what you said. Uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Portland so is landing school. Yeah. I mean, how big have they gotten or how, you know, what's the approximate footprint that they have? I think they've had at least 3,000 alumni through their oh, doors wow. that are that are gainfully employed at this point. Um, and then they they recently had a layoff. So from like a employee count, I think they're at 200. But they, yeah, they alone have educated and gotten gainful employment of at least 3,000 alumni. Are there other places like that? I know like Praxis we had talked to uh, on this show before, but um are there other like are is this like one of many or is bloom tech kind of like unique in that regard there's there's definitely ones that are older and and new ones popping up but the ones that have online programs some also have in person would be like Flatiron yeah. school general assembly and coding dojo do you think um and since you went through this program you're you're probably very qualified to talk about it like what is what is it like like is it is it like online lectures? Is it like, I mean, it's purely remote, right? There's no in-person component. Correct. Purely remote. Yeah. It was purely remote yeah. for nine months. It is typically six months if you pass all six units straight up. But what's beautiful about it is they incorporated a flex option. So in, in 
every unit was about a month. And if you didn't fully integrate the material, um, you could just flex that unit. And I flexed um, front end, back end, which was hard <laughs> to say the least. Um, and then I think the, the computer science unit. So yeah, it was purely online for a period of nine months. And then in terms of like what that looked like day to day, it was uh, for the first four units, it was Monday through Thursday, um, we'd had pre-coursework. So we'd have um, a link to Instructure. It's just the kind of online curriculum uh, startup or just where they manage all the course material. And it would have um, sometimes documentation, videos, practice problems that you'd run through in order to prep for the specific thing you'd be learning, whether it be um, use effects, hooks, if you're learning advanced CSS, whatever that particular day, uh, we'd be prepped on it. Um, and then we'd have a two hour lecture in real time uh, over Zoom with a actual teacher that, you know, software engineer by practice, and they typically specialize in that specific unit, whether it be um, CSS and HTML or React or Node.js, they're pretty good at finding specialized people. And then afterwards, we'd have an automated test project that would have eight to 20 different tests where you'd have a coding problem and it'd be automated and you can see how many codes you passed based on, or excuse me, uh, how many tests you passed based on the, the code you written. And then you'd submit it into the Instructure portal and then they'd have your grades. And I and um, and then on, that was Monday through Thursday. And then they had TA hours, they had open access on a Slack channel um, to the Instructures in real time. And then on Friday, we had our um, sprints where it was just a project with automated testing. And we'd have the whole day to work on it. And I think it opened at midnight and then you had to submit it by like 10 p.m. that night. Um, and then in order did to you pass find, yep. did, did you find that this was a good, since now you're you know working and you know have, have applied this to the real world, did you find that this form of learning was applicable to like what you've seen in real life? Or was there still a bit of a, you know, because I feel like with college, there's always like what you learn in college doesn't really flow into what you learn, like you're going to be doing in your actual job, largely, not always, but there's usually like a big gap there. At least in my experience, there was uh, between what I learned in the classroom and what I had to apply to real life. Did, what was that gap like for this, for Bloomtech? Next to no, I like walked into my new job. <laughs> so uh, I still have a day job and I work for the startup called Vercel which is a front-end hosting platform. And they partnered with Bloom Tech um, to, to get specific hires. And on five months in, I started using Vercel in Bloom Tech um, just to publish and spin up new applications. And then they ended up being my employer. <laughs> so not only was I aware of the product of like what I was selling three months later after getting hired, like I had repetitions on it and they hired specifically for the skill set of learning React, you know, using GitHub and just all the, the tech stack we've used. So there was like, for me at least, there's obviously, there's going to be differences, right? Like if you, it, there's people that got hired for airlines or uh, General Electric, and I'm sure that tech stacks, there's a disconnect between our specific yeah. curriculum. But for me personally, it was like a literal direct line into employment with the skills. Wow, okay, yeah. Yeah, so it's a pretty good, I guess it depends on the employer, but at least in your experience, it was a pretty good kind of one-to-one. -one. Yeah, and, and they, I don't know if current colleges do this, but they have, uh, at Bloom Tech, they had positions directly dedicated to talking to employers and hiring managers of like, what do you guys need? Like, are you shifting to Ruby on Rails? Is Next.js getting hot? 
and and like they'll tweak their curriculum according to that. Oh, so they're trying to have like a little bit of a iterative curriculum almost even depending on what the yeah. market's looking for. And, yeah, and the iter- I guess they, like yeah. do employers pay Bloom Tech to recruit through them? Like, is are they making money on both sides? I think so. Don't quote me on that, it's but I'm good pretty sure. Model. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if they discontinued it, but they had I thought it was forgot if it was called like Bloom Tech Custom, where they would get contractually employers, whether it be Stripe or Amazon or whoever, that said, okay, we need 20 Rust junior engineers. You know, sometimes it's an obscure language that isn't taught in schools or just it's a little bit unorthodox, but they need a team and they need junior devs of that language. And so they'll contractually agree to hire X amount of engineers and then they spin off and do a specialized course or add in units for that specific tech stack. So it was, yeah, they made money through the students and then obviously the partnership of hiring. Yeah, it's a pretty good business model. Um, What do you say to people or like, people who are parents maybe who might be concerned about this where it's like, you know, yeah, like the traditional college model is not ideal. Like it's way too expensive. Like they're not learning the most career applicable things, but like you become like college is about more than just the education. Like it's about being on your own for the first time. And like, you know, you're kind of in still this like controlled environment, but you're more on your own than obviously you were in high school you know, what do you say to people who are like, well, the education is only a piece of what college is. And then like, how do you replace that outside of, of the higher ed system today? Yeah, it's totally fair. Um, first and foremost, I don't think like what I'm building is for everyone. I don't think it'll replace all the monolithic one size fits all. Like if you're a student athlete, I'm not planning on building out, you know, sports facilities or partnering with that. If you're in law or medicine, like, I don't want my neurosurgeon to have a degree from YouTube channel <laughs> for brain yeah. science, right? <laughs> um, but there is uh, obviously certain uh, career paths that are popping up that I think this is um, will be hyper impactful for data science, full stack development, design, et cetera. And so one, that option is always available, right? If they want to go do the four year, figure out, grow. Um, but why someone would choose this is it's de-risked. So like I mentioned before, I didn't have to start paying until I landed my job. Um, and it gives you a skill set that the market demands. And also like worst case scenario, you go through this program, it takes six months, you pay off your loans in 24 months. And then you're a 21 year old saying, oh, maybe I'll get a history degree at Penn State. Right, opposed to the four year commit time commitment of standard school plus X amount of years of debt. Like if you start that path and make that decision as a 17 year old, it's kind of not fully constricted you, but like there are constrictions until you pay that debt off maybe well into your thirties. So one is de-risk and two, you could have both options if you want. But my, my, another argument would be part of the reason why you go to college is for the network, right? Yeah. Yep. We've all heard of the cliche quotes, like your network is your net worth. My argument is that you want to be ahead of the crowd. Like who's the most like well-capitalized, famous company alumni network, like as of right now, it's the PayPal mafia. And for them to start a payments internet company in the late nineties was insane. Like it was atypical. It was really out there, but clearly they saw where the puck was going. And 
typically good things will happen and pay out if you build a network around where the puck is going. Right. Right. So, and at the end to like address the arguments of the, of the hypothetical parents here is like, they won't fit in or, you know, this isn't traditional. It's like, you want that. <laughs> like it's a low risk bet with potentially having a network of students or understanding the old model is an ROI positive. The old model doesn't take into, uh, uh, into calculation of like how quickly technology is moving and that skills are like you can't skills can't be taken away and skills are typically what get you a better career path and so you're more likely to join um an alumni network that understands where the puck is going by doing one of these types of programs correct did did you go to a regular college also and then go into this or what you know what was your path to yeah to getting into yeah. this yeah so I went to a standard four-year undergraduate degree, uh, born and raised in Buffalo, New York, and I graduated high school in 08. Um, and from 08 to 2012, I attended SUNY Geneseo um, and got a business administration degree, which I now feel like is basically as useful as like a degree in basket weaving. <laughs> like it's <laughs> like business, you know, like business administration is one of those kind of like that can fall in the bucket of like communications or, you know, that's like a very ephemeral where you kind of get exposure to a lot of things, but not much like hard depth. I, I agree. I think the only exception I've ever seen with that is um, people who do finance specialization within business administration tend to have at least like some Excel skills and some number skills some data skills um, and are de- especially pretty good at like napkin math I've noticed, but 100%. outside of that, Outside of that, it's a little bit uh, ephemeral to your point. And even yeah. even the finance one can be like hit or miss. I think it, it also really depends on the person um, doing it. 100%. Yeah. And so, yeah, it went from 08 to 2012, business, business administration. I, I almost got a psychology minor, but pretty standard college experience. You know, a lot of partying, you know, not, not too much of like developing skill sets or publishing online or just like things that would serve me now. And then I exited the job market, I graduated in May, excuse me, I entered the job market uh, May 2012 and was just kind of like hit in the face. It was just like understanding, like there's obviously people years ahead of me with these developed skills and my degree was more or less becoming a commodity at that point. I think now more so it's probably a lot worse, you know, 10 years in the future, but even back then in 2012, um, it was, you know, a lot of people were having undergraduate degrees. And so I, I believe over the course of two and a half years, I was in, tried four different industries, uh, service industry. I was in medical sales. Um, I worked for AmeriCorps, um, the, the government agency, similar to the Peace Corps, but it's a domestic program. Um, and then like the uh, stereotypical, stereotypical tech pro that I am, I read the four hour work week <laughs> in 2013. And, you know, mind blown, like, oh, you can leverage the internet to make money while you sleep, which is a lot harder than it sounds. But just like the idea of, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the idea of leveraging the internet as a tool to create a sales page that can work while you sleep or just all these other things um, came in my awareness. And, and then from there, I shifted into um, digital marketing. And for, um, for about a period of... Um, Four years, I worked as an account manager for a digital marketing firm um, that was one part 
um, SEO and one part web design. And so I under, I started to understand like being able to develop tech-based skills were, um, could be super important. And like, that's where the world was going, but I felt kind of in, like I was put in like tech purgatory of having like personal skills, but like no hard, like hardcore skills. Like I wasn't writing at the time. I wasn't technical in SEO, definitely wasn't a developer. And so after that program is where, um, there's a little time in between, but, um, that's when I, when I was there, I started considering Bloomsec because I heard him like the founder, Austin Allenward was going along on these podcasts to promote it. And I always wanted to, um, learn that skill set of full stack development and understanding how applications are built from scratch. Um, and so finally had the taint, the time, space and money in my life to take, you know, nine months off the job market, um, go through Bloom Tech and then come out the other end, um, better for it. And I yep. never made more than 50 grand as an account manager and basically increased my income by 60%, more than 60%, um, in my current job wow. in, in a nine month span. So like, if you just kind of look at my career path, like it was four year degree, you know, capped at 50 grand, um, from that education and then going through this program just felt like it put me on a, a rocket ship path for just a different trajectory for my career. Yeah. And I think that's probably true whether you stay in a regular career, meaning working for other companies, or you also now have a skill set that lets you even take your own idea and take it really far just by yourself because you can, 100%. you can, you can write code. You can, I mean, you obviously could sell and like you had the soft skills so it's like now you have both, which is kind of like being a unicorn in the in the job market that you have uh, hard and soft skills. Hundred percent, yeah. And it's ironically enough, I'm not a developer for my day job Vercel. I'm in technical sales, yeah. and that's fine with me. Like it obviously would have been cool to like ship code and learn that, but just to use your words, being a unicorn, being in sales, knowing how developers create pull requests, like understanding how to debug a console log with certain terminal errors coming like it's been in, invaluable for me and I'll, I'll always have that skill set especially in a role where you're selling a technical product it's, <laughs> yes. it's like yeah yeah it'd be really hard to do that without knowing any of this no matter how yeah, good think, of a salesperson you are <laughs> yeah i think it'll be impossible computer science is one of those things where you if you try to fake it by someone who knows computer science it's, it's easy it will to be sniff out. yes very easy to sniff out <laughs> um yeah no that makes that makes total sense and like yeah, I, I think it's it's so your background is really interesting how you kind of landed here because you kind of went through this by personal experience. And the funny thing is, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things there that I just want to before we move on, like make sure we talk about is you talked about when you got out of college, you didn't have kind of the you know, you were saying you didn't write code, you didn't write, you didn't write in general too much. And it's like one of those things where I think right now, one of the mismatches between how colleges think and how the real world operates is the real world right now is really operating off of like artifacts of like proof that you actually can do what you're talking about or proof that you maybe at the earlier, earlier in your career, it's more proof that you are a good learner or that you're curious or that you're you know, a good speaker, good writer, uh, you just have good instincts, right? I think like early on in someone's career, companies are looking for that proof point because now it, it, to your point about like 2012 versus now, I mean, 
now you have access to talent all over the world. Like, I I think that is a, I don't think Americans yet quite appreciate how many people are coming for their lunch money. (laughs) Like, like it's just everybody because you make so much more money here and you now can make that money without having to be here. So you can stay at your low cost basis in India or like wherever else in the world, Eastern Europe, wherever you are and can make us money in terms of like the revenue that you're getting and so it's a very very tempting prize so having those hard skills just become even more important is where i'm going with that. 100 and to like double click on that like kind of find a stream of thought so up top i mentioned colleges obviously have to fulfill the functions of credentialing and i i have a thesis eventually that'll be outsourced to third parties and it kind of already is um specifically okay. there's a startup called credly that gave me my full stack certification from BloomTech. They kind of have a, a testing or a third party process where they confirm I actually shipped the code that I did and this is my profile on GitHub. And we're getting to the place uh, of the internet with tools. I mean, just like simple blogs, tweets, and then your GitHub profile, like that is your diploma. Like it's, it's like a very hard to fake thing where you have a body of work that's proof of work that is like more tangible and more in-depth um, that an employer can sift through and read. Um, I give this example, like what's more an honest signal of like knowing computer science and being a software engineer? Having a four-year computer science degree from the University of Texas. I mean, some pro- Austin already talked about this. Some programs, uh, you can get a degree in computer science without writing a line of code. I forgot what school wow. it's from. Yeah. So you can have that diploma or, or you can have a two-year-old GitHub profile with green tiles all the way long with 10 working applications that have been deployed. And you can just see in real time like their skill set and their proof of work. Like at the end of the day, the- Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. It's that proof of work. I mean, that's not to dive too deep into the Bitcoin side of things, but like (laughs) that proof of, which I know you and I could probably do a whole separate episode on. Um, But it's that proof of work that you- so that's literally the point I was trying to to make a second ago, which I I didn't use that terminology uh, because I didn't quite make that connection. But that is exactly what it is. It's proof of it's proof of work. It's can you write? Okay, there's one thing to say you have this degree in English or something from some school. It's another thing to have a hundred essays on your Substack. Yeah, right. Like, and like or yeah. a thousand paid subscribers per month. And yep. 10,000 page views per week that you can show the Google and share the Google analytics to. Yep. Like not, not only you can see your skill, you can see that the market likes it. Yes. And, and so at the end of the day, your diploma is just an abstraction of what you learned and pro- online proof of work is like actually what you did. Right. Is actually what you did. It's not about what you say you can do or what this third party says you can do. It's like the actual, this is what you can do. hundred percent. And yeah. And, David Perel, um, for people who don't know, he created a school called the Rite of Passage, which I also an alumni of. I went through his cohort nine program uh, in October. Um, he talks about feedback loops all the time. So like in the current education system, you're writing behind closed doors, you give your paper to a professor and it like rarely sees the light of day. Whereas yeah. where you write online and do your proof of work in public, you get feedback from the market and sometimes very smart people in real time to hone your craft. Yep. Yeah, I think, I forget who says this, but there's somebody, it might be David also, because he's 
pretty well spoken on this topic, but also increasing your luck surface area, going back to your network, your network is your net worth kind of point, you know, your ability to meet people goes so much higher the second you do stuff in public. Like this podcast is actually a great example. So the last episode I had a guy, uh, or I guess by this time it'll be two episodes ago, uh, John Paul Willett, who has a 44 unit retail chain um, in the Southwest. And I literally met him so randomly. Like I saw this thread he did that went viral about him uh, basically funding his company through a poker game. Like this very random occurrence that happened. And it was just such a cool story, well-written thread, whatever. And I saw it was getting popular. So I sent him a message being like, hey, would love to like have you on the show to talk more about this. And he responded because I had a show. Like I couldn't just send him. And then we end up talking. We've talked now like probably three, four times for like, an, I mean, we talked for an hour on the show and then we've probably had three, four other calls. Uh, might even do some work together. Like there's a there's this, this awesome, you know, new relationship that I have just because of the podcast. Because if I didn't have the podcast and I just sent him a message, he'd be like, who is, you know, he probably wouldn't even respond. And so yeah. once and- you have, yeah, once you have these these sort of like things out there, because he could, you know, he, he could look, oh, what are the other episodes this guy has done? What is this guy's Twitter page talking about? Like, oh, he has another podcast. What is that one about? Like, there's all this stuff out there that I've done. And that made him more comfortable responding because I'm sure his DMs, you know, just like most people who, especially when the, after they have a viral thread, it's not like they have a shortage of DMs of people message <laughs> them, messaging them. Uh, so it just creates that luck surface area, the more stuff you do out in public. Yeah, I think David uses the term serendipity vehicle. All that writing is a serendipity vehicle, I think. And to, yeah, yeah. to kind of like double click on um, that podcast example you gave. Imagine if uh, you went to Carnegie Mellon, right? Yeah. Imagine if yep. that, that guy also went to Carnegie Mellon and then you messaged him on LinkedIn trying to build rapport that way. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's a chance than... he would have responded, but not a great yeah. chance. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. And just it's, yeah, your proof of work. And it's also a window into people's thought processes, like kind of their energy and like, just do they put out positivity? Do they put out negativity? And it just increases the surface area of the connections you can make. And when you're on a college campus, like you're confined to those 5,000 students and hundreds of thousands of alumni network. And on the internet, anyone can be your alumni. Well, I wish colleges would, and this goes back to like the feedback loops not being there, right? For, for higher ed, it's like, they actually could do this in a very public way. Like, okay, yes. great. You're studying journalism. Like go do an investigative 10 episode podcast. That is literally the course is go do this. We'll help you do it. We'll help you edit. We'll help you like teach you how to edit, I guess, teach you how to do interview. Like, but your deliverable is a 10 episode investigation into something that of your choice. And you have to go literally put this podcast out in public and like, that's the course. That would be an awesome course. Like I might even want to take that course. That'd be a cool (laughs) course to take. But right now it's like, I don't know. It's like studying an old business model for what journalism was you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, pre-internet. And it's not really built for today. Like you don't need to work for the New York Times today to be a journalist at all. You arguably are a better journalist not working for any of these institutions. Look at the the top two in the field that are crushing it. It's, you know, Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi and their stub stacks are blowing up and their economics don't make sense to work for the New York Times anymore just because their ceiling's infinite. Yep. 
yeah, exactly. That's the best in their field. And that's the path that they're doing, you know, taking to, to get there. And I guess in the same way, right. It's like, I don't know why colleges don't think about helping their students create these artifacts of their work, essentially. Um, a portfolio, I guess, you know, a, a proof of work, know, some examples, <laughs> proof of work that, that, that yeah. an employer could then look at and say, okay, this, you know, this person has what I'm looking for or this, and, you know, maybe it has something to do with by doing that, it makes the degree less valuable. I don't, I don't know. It, so what do you, I mean, what do you think about that? I, I can entertain both ideas, right? I think one could just be old systems that have momentum that is very hard to change and move that large moving object of a current college campus. But in part too, I think like it'll, it'll create creative disruption if they made a hard pivot to creating artifacts and putting the work out public, which will lead to employment opportunities and just serendipity. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if it's case by case, but I, I imagine that, you know, administrators have considered both for not, for not producing in public. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a combination. It's not just a one or the other thing, but yeah, it's probably a combination. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a reason like, like Blockbuster still needed people to come to their stores, even though they built an app or they built a streaming service, which then obviously got taken over by Netflix, but like they still have that infrastructure where they need to pay those bills and, and justify all the kind of old systems. Yeah. And I guess, so now I'd love to talk a little more about like what you're building. Cause one of the problems that somebody could also point to in the online education space, given the credentialing is a little bit amorphous or vague right now, how would like, let's say you're a parent of an 18 year old and you're like, Hey, I don't, or a 17 year old. And you're like, Hey, I don't really believe in what higher ed is doing right now, but how do I sift through these new models of higher education and like decide what, or help my kid decide what, what they should be doing? Like what's, I guess like what, what's the right way for somebody to go about doing that? Cause I feel like there is on one hand, you have these old institutions and there's like the U S news and world report or whatever, that's going to give the rankings and be like, Oh, you should go to like the, the highest ranked school you could get according to our rankings. And then there's like the, the new world of education, I guess. And it's like the wild west in some ways. <laughs> yes. Uh, how do you, yeah. How do you sift through that? Um, I mean, the purpose of unbundled, uh, this platform is to get like the top tier programs that also de-risk the education process. So we're looking on sifting out quality um, and then providing that to the students as kind of being a, a filter of quality. And like, yeah. obviously like, yeah, the, the amount of, it's funny, the, I think Balaji Srinivasan has a great quote is like the internet increases variance on all sides of the spectrum. So you have four hour long mind blowing podcast with historians that are top of the field and then you just have like just absolute nonsense <laughs> people don't, you know putting out topics they don't know that they're talking about that's not interesting and so in there it's like the 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 job of filtering and sifting and finding signal in the noise is definitely going to be one of our core functions of of vetting these programs and obviously myself being an alumni of bloom tech uh knowing that it's a, a quality program to put it to put it through and also being hyper mindful of leading with an roi positive program for the students so what is unbundled? Like if you had to kind of give the, the elevator pitch, you know, what is unbundled? What are you guys doing? Like both today in terms of like MVP, I feel like is probably where yep. it is today. And yep. then, um, and then where you kind of want to take it long-term. Yeah. So it's a online marketplace for 
alternatives in higher education to create a custom college experience um, for half the time uh, and half of the cost. Um, and so the MVP, um, my core student or the core user I'm looking for right now is a high school senior that's 17 years old that wants to learn, become a software engineer or a data scientist. And they don't wanna do the four year um, undergrad experience and learn and take classes they're not interested in. And they're more focused on getting income quicker. Um, that's willing to take an alternative program like General Assembly or Bloom Tech, and then pair them and get them on an existing college campus or potentially learning pod or alternative housing like uh, townhouses at current colleges that are built by third parties. Um, but just to keep it simple, um, Bloom Tech student that also gets paired with a college that's willing to accept um, a student that's not directly taking their program, but they want the revenue of an average of 10 to 13 grand of room and board for this alternative mm. student. So they live and work with fellow like-minded students doing Bloom Tech and also are integrated into the environment and the college and campus life um, of an existing campus. Um, and they, and well, my pitch that to the solves college, one of the, that solves one of the things we were just talking about, which is the college life part of college that you might lose in an online only program. Correct. Yeah. And so for the college, it helps fill the spare capacity of their, you know, uh, dorms that they might have open. Yeah. It's, it's, they have the infrastructure, they have the high fixed costs and it'll give them extra revenue. And, and also potentially these students can buy their ancillary services, right? Like a la carte gym yeah. memberships, uh, potentially access into the, the student union and things of that nature. Have you tried pitching this to colleges yet? Not yet. Um, I'm trying to aggregate student demand first and then use that as a higher leveraging um, tactic, right? Opposed to saying, you know, I have 10 students. I can say, hey, I have a thousand students that are willing to pay you 10 yeah. grand for a semester. Like, will you, will you consider this? Yeah, it's a lot easier sales pitch <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in that yeah. scenario. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? That's like 10 million in revenue that you're driving at that point? Yeah. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have it here. The So the average room and board for private colleges are $13,620. And then public colleges, it's uh, $11,950. Yeah, so, so if you have 1,000 students, let's say it's somewhere in the middle of that, 12.5 or something. So that's 12.5 million. For, yeah, for that, that, not pure profit, but obviously the profit margin is going to no. be higher. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but even if it's just revenue, that's not insignificant. For sure. Especially so, with, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so where is this, by the way, like in terms of MVP, like stage, like, so what are you today, like in terms of, let's say somebody goes to the unbundled website today, fills out the form, you know, what happens next? Like what, what are, what are, what are they getting? Um, yeah, they're getting in the network. Um, like I said, I'm going to build, get to a core mass of a thousand users with their emails and, and phone numbers and then filter from there based on location. Um, and then from there, I'll move into um, partnering with colleges that are in their geographical region or within regions um, that they're willing to travel in. And then also, and then within that, they'll be connected with like-minded students looking for alternative educations and can build their own network from there. What are some examples of that, like people like-minded students? So it would be like all computer science students through this kind of like living in the same townhouse or something. Like if there's five, five computer science students all in like the Philadelphia area, like they could, 
all kind of rent a townhouse together and then kind of be in a more immersive environment? Immersive environment, uh, get feedback from others and teach each other, and then just have uh, a network for the next four decades, knowing they, they went through this program. And also looking to attract students who are internet natives that understand the value of building a Twitter audience, understand the value of building a podcast. And in terms of vision, I would love to add that on and add in functions and processes so they can build their own on- online audiences or something equivalent, just so that you kind of have a mafia network of people that have audiences, email lists, right? Like imagine if like you knew you got connected with seven other 18 year olds that for the next 10 years is going to make a hundred Twitter posts a day. Right. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. yeah. What, what are some of the blockers for you right now? Like what's, you know, what's kind of stop, stopping your progress or what's making it harder? Um, just getting this thing off the ground. Um, so, you know, rich the domain three months ago, um, dealt in the design, the concept, the language, and just uh, the marking of it to get to um, the first thousand users or, or email lists. And like as an entrepreneur, you know, you like getting to, not past escape velocity, but just getting initial traction is probably the hardest part. Yeah, that's not an easy step. Is just getting, especially for something that is looking for network effects, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. it's not trivial. Um, Got it. And so what would um, somebody who's listening to this is like, wow, this sounds like a great option. Curious to learn more. Um, Should they just, should they go to Unbundled? And obviously we'll put the link in the, in the show notes. What's the, what's kind of the best step for them? Yeah. Go to the domain is unbundled.education and the brand name is Unbundled. Um, Go there, submit out your email form and, and we'll start building this out and I will be in contact with you. Cool. And if somebody wants to learn more about you or talk to you directly, maybe they're at a college, maybe they're at a company, uh, maybe they're just somebody interested in learning more. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, you can go to my website, peterdavidconley.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-D-A-V-I-D-C-O-N-L-E-Y. Um, I got an email submission form you can do there, or honestly, Twitter's the best. Uh, my handle is, <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Uh, Peter D. Conley is my handle. And my DMs yeah, and I'll put, yeah, and I'll put links to everything in the in the show notes also, so people can just click through there if that's easier. That'd be great. But, but Peter, thank you so much for coming on. This was this was awesome. I feel like this is a topic you know we could talk about for a while. And uh, thank you for at least trying to do something to solve this problem because I think there's a lot of people out there who would agree with you that this is a problem, but not so many people actually you know working to solve it every day. So. Thanks for trying to do something and, uh, you know, wishing you luck. And hopefully you're able to, uh, to play a role in, in fixing this education system because everything is downstream of that. If we, if we fix that, I think like the future looks a lot better. hundred percent. Yeah. So much of it's downstream of it. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Peter. Thanks, Neil.